Hello, you guys, and welcome back to What's Stopping You with Kelsey Jones. I'm your host, Kelsey Jones, and today's episode is one that I'm just so excited to bring to y'all because it has literally been months in the making, and it's finally here. I finally got the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Ashley Farmer to talk all about systemic racism in the U.S., And if you don't know who she is, she is a historian of African-American history and black radicalism. She also is an educator. I actually took her class at the University of Texas at Austin. I think it was just intro to African-American history. And that was an incredibly pivotal experience for me just as a college student and as a person, as well as she's also an author. She's written two books as well as I think she's working on her third one right now. She'll introduce more about herself in the episode, but she's absolutely incredible. She went to Spelman College for her undergrad and got her master's and PhD in African-American studies from Harvard University. So Dr. Farmer is an incredible, incredible resource for us, and I'm so glad that she took the time out of her day to do this episode with me to not only educate me, but educate all you guys listening. So like I said, y'all are in for a treat. But going back to George Floyd's murder, which was May 25th, 2020, I released an episode shortly thereafter called It's Time to Speak Up. And I think it was like nine minutes long. And it was just me trying to not only address what was going on in the world and kind of share my my point of view on things, but it was also kind of my proclamation of me saying that I want to use my voice and my privilege for good and for justice. And I knew that just doing that one little episode was not going to cut it. That does not mean that the work is done by any means. So I went ahead and reached out to Dr. Farmer, who again was my professor, and I knew that she would be the perfect person to talk about these things on the podcast. So reached out to her and she so graciously offered to be on the podcast. And I'm so glad that I finally found the time to sit down with her and to talk to her and answer not only all y'all's questions, but also give kind of a broad, and I mean very broad because there's just so much history that we could have dived into, but it was a very broad kind of explanation of history, how we got to where we are and what we can do moving forward. So I'm so glad that this episode happened. I'm so glad to be continuing to talk about things and continuing to be a voice because I do wholeheartedly believe in, you know, the importance of Black Lives Matter, the importance of equality, justice, equity, diversity, inclusion, all these quote-unquote buzzwords, but I, I do wholeheartedly believe that it is each and every one of our responsibility to do the good that we can do, and I have this incredible platform to share my voice and spread a message, and this is a message that I want to spread. So again, I'm so excited for this episode. I know it's a bit of a long one, but you guys, it is worth every single minute, And yeah, so let's go ahead and dive into the episode. I won't make y'all wait any longer. So without further ado, let's go. Hi, Dr. Farmer. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? Great, great. Thank you so much for being on my podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and tell everyone a little bit about who you are, what you do? Um, So my name is Dr. Ashley Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of history and African and African diaspora studies at the University of Texas at Austin. 
Um, during the day, I teach classes like Intro to African American History, Intro to African American Women's History. Um, I also teach graduate students courses on Black women's history. Um, and then my scholarship is on Black women who are in radical politics and thinkers. Um, my most recent book is one called Remaking Black Power, How Black Women Transformed an Era. And it's like an intellectual and social history of Black women and the Black Power movement. Wow, that's awesome. So since y'all don't know how I know Dr. Farmer, I actually took her class at UT. Y'all probably know I go to UT. And I took her class back in the fall of 2019. And I'm pretty sure it was just intro to African American history or African American Mm -hmm. studies. And honestly, I took the class because it fulfilled our history like core curriculum requirement but it ended up being one of my favorite classes I've ever taken at UT not just because Dr. Farmer is like really entertaining in class and like very captivating so I really appreciate that about your class but also because I feel like it's one of those classes where I learned something that like I never knew before and I learned so much about the intricacies of history that were just like hidden from me growing up or just like things that people don't talk about a lot and it became like a really nice open space for discussion. So I really loved taking her class and it it ended up teaching me so much about just how to learn how to question everything that you learn. I think that's something that you said a lot in class is to question everything. Why are people telling you this and how are they telling you all this information? And I feel like now being in college, it's just made me so much of a better learner and just a more educated and socially aware person. So I loved taking her class and I really appreciate that semester that I had with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. We have a good time in there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We like to talk about all your Desperate Housewives shows that you like to watch, right? Isn't that you like trashy reality <laughs> yes. TV? We learned yes, that the first day. I that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so like I do in most of my episodes recently, I've been trying to share a spotlight organization that deserves our recognition, places that we can donate to. And I especially think this episode definitely deserves a really important organization. So I went ahead and let Dr. Farmer choose one for this week. So why don't you go ahead and tell us what you chose and what it's about? Um, Yeah, so the organization I chose is called Survived and Punished. Um, This is a group that I've been supporting for a number of years. Um, And it's a national coalition, but they primarily operate out of um, New York and California. And it includes those who have been victims of the prison industrial complex, um, victims of domestic violence that have gone in and out of the prison industrial complex, um, advocates, attorneys. So it's a broad collective of folks. Um, But basically, it's working to kind of decriminalize um, survivors of domestic um, and sexual violence. Um, You know, get rid of the idea that we have an ideal um, criminal or an ideal good um, victim. And also in the process of doing decriminalizing, they see that as a step on the way to prison abolition. Um, So they have a website called survivedandpunished.org where they have great resources on on prison abolition. Um, You can also donate to their work. Um, They also do lots of great teach-ins and webinars. So I really encourage folks to check them out. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to have that and all the links to where they can find you in the description of the episode. And we'll talk about it at the end again. But today, I really just wanted to take this opportunity to set the record straight on systematic racism in America, talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, 
allyship and just address a lot of questions that people had. I went on my Instagram and had everyone ask me any questions that they wanted to ask anonymously, just things that they were wondering that they weren't sure if they could ask people or just created a safe space for people to ask questions with somebody who is an educator and does want to educate people. So I'm really excited for our conversation today. And yeah, we'll go ahead and get into it. So the first thing I want to start off with is discussing the roots of racial inequality in America. So can you explain just quickly, I know this is a very broad (laughs) and kind of loaded question, and I knew when you read this that it would be a little complicated, but can you explain a little bit of how racial inequality began with slavery back in the 1600s and how it's manifested into today's society? Yeah. Um, so just to give you the very click, cliff notes version of like 400 years of history, um, you know, this is like the entirety of the class, yeah. also, basically. <laughs> um, but basically, um, you know, there was racial difference in an understanding of racial distance before what we call the transatlantic slave trade, meaning, you know, the massive deportation of African peoples over to America, um, meaning the United States, but also Central America and South America, with Brazil getting the most um, slaves out of any place in the transatlantic slave trade. Um, so we had folks like in Portugal and Spain, particularly Henry the Navigator, um, collecting slaves or black people off the coast of Africa and bringing them to Portugal. But this in itself didn't really make slavery as we know it today. Um, Originally, when primarily Spain and Portugal started colonizing what we now constitute as the Americanas on indigenous land, um, they originally tried to enslave indigenous peoples. Um, But that didn't work out because of the disease that they brought there and also because indigenous people fought back and also because they died um, from the kind of very harsh reality of slavery very quickly. Um, So they needed another labor supply. That's how we ended up with the transatlantic slave trade. And I want to be clear, you know, Africans were quote unquote ideal for this for a couple of reasons. One is that they took Africans from all different parts of Africa who had really specialized knowledge in how to um, grow and cultivate certain crops um, and live in certain climates. So um, it wasn't just kind of a you know, just pick anybody, but it was very strategic. But also, um, you know, they took people from different places in Africa so that they could not communicate and couldn't fight back. And then they also took people um, in different kind of, they placed them in different parts of America. So they might get dropped off in Brazil, in the Caribbean, in America, etc. So all of this made it so it was difficult to fight back. But I want to be clear that Africans certainly did so. So now you've got this huge um, kind of labor regime, but you still got to institute the idea that black people or Africans are necessarily inferior. So one of the ways in which they did that in the 1600s is to kind of legislate slavery. So I think just to finish up this question, Virginia is a really good example of how they did this in the 1600s. So um, when the Virginia colony started, there were indigenous people black people, white people, all working side by side. And really your distinction was class, right? You might be an indigenous servant or working class person, or you might own land or be property. They changed this in a couple ways. Um, One, they started taxing African women specifically. Um, Once they became free people that maybe weren't indigenous servants, if you had to pay that tax, you often couldn't do it. And that put you back into indigenous servitude, which is a slide back towards slavery. Secondly, they started creating kind of I guess you would call them religious and cultural diatribes where kind of blackness or Africanness was associated with 
being a heathen and being white was associated with being saved or Christian. So then you start to see that distinction. And then finally, perhaps the most important law was legislating that African women's children, if they were enslaved, so too were those children enslaved. So then you started creating um, this idea that enslaved people begot slave people and that there was no way out for their children whatsoever. So I just want to give that as an example of how really early on in the 1600s, we get these ideas socially and culturally and religiously that black people are different, but also how they make that divide legally to kind of make slaves and free people. So as y'all can see, racism has been ingrained in the fabric of America going back to even before America was America. So I think it's interesting that I think a lot of people recently have found out that in the Constitution, the 13th Amendment essentially allows slavery if you're convicted of a crime, which is actually something that I don't remember you necessarily touching on in class, but I would love for you to share some of the other contemporary policies that allow racism to persist, because I know we talked a lot about this. Yeah, so um, certainly the 13th Amendment exists, and that was a way to um, keep people enslaved or um, imprisoned often as well. Um, But another thing to think about, particularly in the 1960s, is the war on drugs. And this became an extensive effort to um, try to create everything from like after school programs to try to be very tough on policing of people that engaged in drugs is kind of a cautionary tale. Um, So you got things like different forms of sentencing for the type of drug used. And the most poignant example that falls along kind of racial lines is the sentencing for crack and the sentencing for cocaine, which are two forms of the same drug. But the crack version is cheaper and therefore often more used in black and brown communities versus white folks that could afford, you know, the Wall Street folks that could afford, you know, the nicer, more pure version of the drug. Um, So you often saw white people get kind of a slap on the wrist or probation, whereas you might see um, black people or black and brown people get incarcerated for long times or for life because of that. Another thing you might want to think about is the three strikes and your out rule, which was very popular, especially in the 80s and 90s. And the idea here was ostensibly we're using leniency, saying you have a couple of tries of breaking the law before you, um, you know, you're imprisoned for good or for longer periods of time or if you get a harsher sentence. Um, But in actuality, these sentencing measures were applied unevenly. And, you know, it's a different to have a three strikes for having, you know, an ounce of marijuana on you versus having um, three strikes for, you know, for example, a violent crime against somebody else. But all of this was not being considered when they were imprisoning people at large amounts. And then finally, I want to talk about what happens if you end up getting into jail and getting out of jail. We have created a lot of laws, particularly at the state level, that bar people who have been convicted of a felony from voting, um, from holding jobs, from going, you know, and having to declare this in some sort of circumstances, even if they've paid their debt to society. So what happens is, is that large amounts of people that have been to prison, even if they've, quote unquote, served their time and made amends, aren't able to get back into the political economy and into the workforce because of discrimination against previous felonies. So these are all ways that um, even though it seemed like we're being tough on crime, for example, or um, you know people pun- being punished, they're actually not really serving the process of rehabilitation and they're not allowing people to kind of move forward with their lives if they've served their time. 
Yeah. And I think a lot of these things are now coming to light that a lot of people didn't know. And people are really outraged that these policies still exist. So why do you think that that's the case? Why do you think some of these policies haven't been repealed or haven't been talked about until now? And what can you say to people who think, oh, the civil rights movement ended and everyone's equal now? Like, there's no inequality. What do you have to say to those kind of people? Um, so I'm going to answer that question in two parts. The first part is like, you know, why are these still in place? America at its core, at its founding, is founded on the idea of a racial hierarchy because right, slavery, as I told you about in the 1600s, predates the kind of founding of America's nation state. So there's got to be some hierarchy that black and brown people are lower and white people are higher. Secondly, it's a capitalist economy, which means, and, and before we had kind of free market capitalism, meaning everybody's supposed to be able to engage in it today, we had slavery in which black and brown people were the labor force. To try to upend that or change that is not in the ruling hierarchy's best interest. People want to keep people working in the workforce in the same way, making money in the same way, because that helps them stay um, in their privileged position. As far as um, civil rights movement in and everybody equal now. So one of the ways, one of the main goals of the civil rights movement was to try to legislate, right, those things that we were talking about. So making sure people can vote, making sure that people, if they're discriminated against, can file a suit, say, with the federal government or the attorney general, basically reassuring Black people's constitutional rights. This is only one part of the solution. The laws have to be in place. But as I talked about with my previous answer, even if those laws are in place, that doesn't mean the people that are in charge of enacting them, ensuring them, are always doing the right thing. A perfect example being like the unequal sentencing between Black people and white people. And so even if we have all these laws on the books, there's still a level of execution that is a problem. So it's not just, oh, once you get the laws, everything's better. And then also there are always ways to skirt around the laws. To give you two examples from the civil rights movement, one of the things the civil rights movement did was work on desegregating schooling through Brown versus the Board of Education. So this was meant to help black people integrate into white schools. But what we found is instead of integrating, many white people just left and went to the suburbs and created their own schools and school districts there. So yes, they're integrated, quote unquote, but then they just left um, and with them left the resources for that school. Another example is voting. Once every Black person ostensibly had the right to vote all the time, what you see happening nowadays is they're redrawing the voting districts in lines, you know, to make sure that Black people are not adequately represented in the same way. So it's not just enough to have the laws on the books. We need to still be holding those people in power to enforcing those laws in order for the movement's goals to work. Yeah, so I think that's definitely something that I didn't realize was so pervasive in society until you taught me that is because I would definitely say I grew up in a white suburb like now that knowing like how all that history created separation between people of either different classes or races I definitely see how I grew up in a white suburb and how that definitely contributes to just even subconscious biases that I didn't even know I had Mm -hmm. And I think it's also made me realize that, especially taking a Black history course, that I've learned kind of a filtered version of history and kind of just like, quote unquote, the white version of history where like, especially if you think about Christopher Columbus, like he was literally a murderer. He came in and just killed all these innocent indigenous people. And (laughs) yes, literally. And we, when, when you learn history growing up, like you see, oh, Christopher Columbus and you put him on this pedestal and you sing songs about him. And that's just like so 
backwards now that I've like learned so much more. So why do you think, especially as an educator, why do you think that we kind of learned this filtered version of the truth growing up? Like I went to public school. So in the public K through 12 um, educational system, why do you think we learned this filtered version of the truth? I think it comes from two reasons. So one is like a big meta reason, which is America as an idea, right? America as a nation state only works if you believe the story that, you know, these these men in these 13 colonies rebelled against the crown and created this more just and equal democracy, right? And that America's goal and kind of position in the world is to be this example of democracy with, quote, liberty and justice for all. So if that's going to work and you're going to get people to buy into that, then you cannot talk about all the people like the indigenous folks whose land we all live and work on, right, that was taken by Columbus. You can't talk about all the ways in which Black people are not getting the constitutional rights laid before them or getting killed, you know, by the very structures that are supposed to protect them, et cetera. It doesn't fit into that narrative. And if you don't fit in a narrative, then people start not to buy in, right? Um, and so because of that, you only get, if you get any Black history at all, you get very uh, sanitized versions of Black people, and they're placed on this kind of idea of a triumphant democracy, right? So let's just take the civil rights movement we were talking about. Maybe you learn about Rosa Parks. Maybe you learn about Martin Luther King, right? You don't learn about anybody that was not interested in integrating into the American nation state. But there have been plenty of Black people that have said, We're not interested in this, or we don't think this works as a nation or a project. And then when you do learn about them, you learn a very sanitized version. Just to give you the Rosa Parks example, I think if I ask you to conjure an image of Rosa Parks, she'd be an old, tired Black woman that just didn't want to give up her seat one day, right? But um, Kelsey now knows that's not true. Um, She was actually quite young, and she was actually very much a studied activist and had been um, organizing in radical circles for years, and she was planted there because they thought that she was the best bet for a lawsuit against the city of Montgomery when you're talking about the Montgomery bus boycott. So it's not just that you're getting the kind of dumbed down version, but you're also getting the sanitized version of people. Another example being MLK very much was an anti-poverty advocate, an anti-war advocate, but we only ever hear about him having a dream and then he died. Nothing else happened, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, but that again is to try to get people to invest in that. So that's kind of the meta version. The more kind of day-to-day version is that You have to think about the people who are teaching this history. It's only fairly recently, even, that one could take a course in African-American history at a school. Um, It's only fairly recently that we have Black and Brown people being able to teach not only in Black and Brown spaces. Um, You used to only, if you were, say, a Black woman that wanted to be a teacher, before this, you could only really teach at Black schools. They wouldn't hire you, right, because of segregation. And so it also has to do with who you get to see in front of your room and what kind of communities they come from. And, you know, what kind of community you come from often plays into what kind of history you teach. So it's kind of this big level, but also this kind of day to day level of, you know, diversity in terms of teachers as well. That's really interesting. I think especially if I think about like growing up in a white suburb, going to a primarily white school growing up, all my teachers were white. They probably were just as ignorant and also just as maybe just unwilling to learn. So I definitely think that that's part of the change that needs to happen is diversity in education Mm -hmm. and diversity of experience in education. So And I just want to point out too, like it's not, sometimes it's not always teacher's fault. Cause like, for example, one of the things I do during the summer is help K through 12 teachers learn because this was a missing part of their curriculum. So if there's not a class in college or at education school about this, then 
how do you learn to go then teach it to your other students, right? And so um, sometimes it's not necessarily that people don't want to learn, but if it's not part of the curriculum, if it's not required that people learn about not just Black culture, but Indigenous folks, you know, Latinx folks, et cetera, um, how do then do they pass that information on? Yeah, right? yeah, that's really interesting. So one thing that I want to talk about is allyship, because most of my listeners' questions are about allyship. So I wanted to ask you, what are the best ways to be an active ally right now? Um, yeah, I think there's a couple of ways you can do this. One is um, learning. So one of the things that um, we were talking about a little bit earlier is just there's now kind of been a proliferation of resources available to people, right? Um, and a lot of these are, you know, I don't, I know sometimes not everybody has time to, um, you know, read a whole, you know, lengthy kind of academic book. But now there's podcasts, there's articles, there's lists, there's anything mm-hmm. you can possibly think of. So try to be as well versed and be honest about what you don't know. And it's okay. I mean, you know, one of the things I think I try to convey to you guys in class is that, you know, there's an invested interest sometimes in you not knowing, right? And mm-hmm. that's okay that you didn't know. But now that you know there's a gap, you have a responsibility to try to be as informed as possible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, my next suggestion would be that injustice, I kind of like, I think about justice and white supremacy is kind of a big pie. And it covers everything, everything from, you know, health to school to neighborhood zoning to anything. Um, And if you try to think about all of it at once, it becomes kind of unbearable and you get paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Um, So instead, think about what part of the injustice pie are you most passionate about? What can you like sustained want to learn about, engage in more? For me personally, right, it's history and education. That's why I do this, right? And then I would say try to find an existing local group or collective that is already doing that work. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. I guarantee you, you know, black people aren't new to this. We've been struggling for this a long time. I guarantee you there's a wonderful local organization that is addressing whatever form of injustice draws you the most. Mm-hmm. And start to go with them. Find a home with them. And that means, you know, maybe supporting them money-wise if you can. Organizing takes work. I mean, money to mm-hmm. do. Um, that means or helping with time, um, volunteering um, to do something. It doesn't have to be every single day, but something you can do. Um, volunteer with spreading the word. And also volunteer with taking stuff into your communities that maybe black and brown people don't have access to. Because maybe people might be sometimes more willing to listen to you about a subject than they would somebody that looks like me. But it doesn't matter as long as they kind of get to understand the scope of that injustice and try to, you know, shift their ideas about it. So learning, finding kind of your piece of the injustice pie, and then just kind of committing to sitting down and finding a home working on that would be three ways to do that. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I think one of the the biggest things going back to George Floyd's recent murder and the Black Lives Matter movement, which we'll get into in just a minute. But one of the recent issues with that is just kind of the overwhelming either amount of resources or mm-hmm. things that you can do. You know, you can donate here, you can donate there, you can go to this protest, that protest. And it's mm-hmm. just like it, it is overwhelming for everybody. And I think that's something that I I feel like I've tried to tell people and I hope that this is correct, that you have to figure out like what way will you actually be beneficial? Because Mm -hmm. I think it's one thing to just show up and say you're an ally. And at at some point, it's just like performative allyship, which basically means that you just outwardly look like an ally, but you're not really doing anything productive. And I think when, when all of that was going down, I was sitting with myself trying to figure out, okay, what can I do that would actually make a difference? Because me just 
spamming social media and posting like we can talk about for a minute like the black square on instagram you saw that (laughs) okay wait i want to hear i want to hear your take on it because i want to hear your take on it because i personally did not post a black square because i and i'm not like judging anybody who did i just personally believed what is a black square gonna do because it's a picture on instagram at the end of the day so i'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah well, so, I mean, the black square, the posting, um, all of this stuff, and especially I would I would like to connect this to um, what you're seeing often with, like, um, Black Lives Matter being put on streets, for example, in, like, D.C. I think they did it here in downtown Austin, right? Yes. There needs to be an understanding that one can post or do these things as an expression of one's politics, and that's not a bad thing. But at the end of the day, most Black people I would have imagined that you would talk to, if they ask you, did you post a black square or did you stand up and make sure that they could vote right did you um try to decrease the amount of money the police department is getting so they're not killed right did you support the redlining or moving around of zones right in your own hometown that allowed them to not to vote or lose their political power these kinds of symbolic things are not without importance but they have to be connected to some kind of tangible action and so that's why and and one of the things that is a blessing and a curse about social media. Social media allows you to get the word out. Most of us would never know George Floyd died, right? If there wasn't for social media. So it plays a very real and important role of spreading information, mm-hmm. but it's important to make sure that spreading information is not all one does, right? And it doesn't end there or showing support in one day is not all one does. And that's why I emphasize really taking some time to pick an issue that you feel passionate about because it's, I mean, you know, liberation is a long game. Right. It, and, it, and it takes a lot of energy and effort and just especially in a pandemic, but usually every day, just life is exhausting. You know, adulting is exhausting. <laughs> yeah. and so and yeah. so if you're not passionate about that issue, it's hard for you to do things that, you know, that commit to it and sustain change in a really tangible way. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think it's important. Like I said, it doesn't have to be everything. It can just be the small subset. But if you're willing to kind of I, I encourage people to think deep instead of broad dig deep into one issue instead of trying to tackle Mm -hmm. everything. And, you know, if you move the needle forward on that issue, then that's, you know, that's a really great way to support people in a life well lived. Yeah. And I definitely feel like, like you said, that your like piece of the pie in Black liberation or just like social justice is education and history. And I kind of feel like Mm -hmm. I might be the same way, honestly, because I am here having you on my podcast to educate people. And whenever I get the chance, I love talking Mm -hmm. to people about your class. And I love sharing with people like the classes you teach and stuff like that. So I feel like that's one area where I can be really useful and donating money because I do have the means. So I think it's okay for us as long as we're you know, learning as best we can. I'm not trying to preach the choir, but as long as we're learning the best that we can and trying to do something tangible about it, I think, I think we're making progress there. So don't get too overwhelmed. Yes. And one of my favorite activists today, a woman named Miriam Kaba, who works in Chicago and is who um, helps run the survived and punished group that I talked about at the beginning. She says, um, she asks herself, what is one small thing I did today to alleviate someone's suffering? Right. Mm -hmm. And that could be as simple as, you know, maybe donating some food or helping somebody navigate, you know, a difficult issue, you know, but, you know, she's like, you got to think about it sometimes in those kind of small ways as well. Yeah. What did I do to just to help alleviate somebody else's suffering, particularly if that person didn't look like me? Yeah. You know, and those small kind of tangible things also can help it kind of break down and feel a little bit more manageable, too. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the next thing I want to talk about is kind of recent shifts in language or grammar or just the way that we talk about people of color. There's a lot of questions, so we're going to go one by one. So would Mm -hmm. you first mind explaining when to refer to someone as Black versus African-American? Yeah, so I mean, this, I don't want anybody to take my answers to the definitive answers, but I'll, you know, discuss as to what I do. So it's important to understand that there are Black people in America right who are the who are the descendants of those who were enslaved but there are also people all over the world that make up something called the african diaspora that includes people that were not necessarily in america right that were transported as slaves those people that have migrated willingly and obviously of course anybody on the continent of africa so one of the ways i try to distinguish is when i'm talking about african americans i am talking about the people who are either born here or largely experienced their life here in America and in, in the United States, particularly, who are often the de- descendants of slaves and who are dealing with a particular brand of racism that is caught up in the way America operates, right? When I talk about Black people, I mean that in two ways. One, I mean kind of more the entire African diaspora as a distinct set of people, but not necessarily folks in America, United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, I mean a set of culture and um, and practices that descend from Black people coming from Africa and coming over to the American Americas writ large, but may not necessarily be from America specifically. So I kind of think of Black as the big bubble, and then Amer- African Americans as a subset of that um, group. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. And I think, I guess I'll follow up with this question. So if you were to refer to somebody, and you don't know whether they fully identify as just Black or African American, what would you say? Would you ask them how they identify, or do you just use Black as a blanket term and have them say, I prefer to be called African American? Or how would you navigate that? Yeah, I think um, the way I'm using it, Black covers, you know, anybody that, you know, is is of African descent, Mm -hmm. you know, so because just because someone is here doesn't mean they grew up here, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they identify as African American. And so I think black would be kind of the blanket term and then, um, you know, following their lead as to how they identify themselves, you know, when they speak. Right. Okay, that's very helpful. Very clear and concise answer. There you go, people. (laughs) All right. so, So the next one, I feel like a lot of people did not know until very recently is should we capitalize the B in black and why? Yeah, this is a very, so this has been, this conversation has been going on for years upon years. Mm -hmm. Um, And if people kind of want some backstory, there's been like New York Times op-eds articles written about (laughs) it. It's been Mm -hmm. an ongoing debate about um, if we should do it in our own writing and if these style guides that we use, like, right, like the AP style should use it. So it is, it's complicated and you will find black people on both sides of the divide, right? I think that it is useful for a couple of reasons, personally. Um, One is to talk about the group of people and their experiences and culture specifically in a way that is uniting, like I'm talking about the African diaspora, by using a proper noun with a capital letter, right? There's also kind of a grammatical argument for it. So I'm going to read a New York Times headline to talk about, to kind of show you the grammatical point. Okay. So I think most people know about Amy Cooper, the white woman who called the police on the black birder. So a recent New York Times article, the headline was, quote, Amy Cooper, white woman in Central Park, who called the police on a black bird watcher, right? So I want to focus on the black bird watcher part. In this particular iteration of the article, it was after people decided to capitalize the B. So it says black with a capital B, bird watcher. If the B was not capitalized, 
somebody might argue that it would they would call the police on someone who watches black birch. Does that make sense? It's the difference yeah. between the color black and black as a signifier of an ethnic or racial identity. Mm-hmm. So some people just argue for a very technical reason. Right. It should be capitalized to connote that you're talking about this group of people or a racial identification versus a color that we also use. Mm -hmm. The question then becomes, then, do we also capitalize the W in white? Right. Yeah. (laughs) Or Native American. Right. Um, And in other cases, for example, Native Americans, you would capitalize that. That's not up Mm -hmm. for debate. Right. Um, So some people argue that there are plenty of other instances in which either ethnic or racial groups are already capitalizing their names. Why would black people be any different? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's complicated, but I think those are kind of the reasons both grammatically and following suit with trying to connote a group of people um, as a proper noun that we do it. Also, I think to some extent, it's a manifestation of someone's politics. Right. To capitalize it is to say that one understands there is a distinct experience of being a black person, that that is a racial and cultural grouping and that it is afforded the respect of those that we give others like, say, Indigenous people or Native Americans. There you go, people. You got it. Next one, which I feel like is another... This is another one that I've recently felt like I'm not sure how to address this. So when, if ever, should we refer to someone as a person of color? Because I feel like sometimes it it comes off as offensive or people have found it offensive and I don't understand why. Yeah, so um, people of color, a person of color, or a woman of color are all terms that developed in the late 20th century um, as people were trying to link their struggles together, right? So even if like, um, and, and this is why I just want to talk about why it came into being and why people find it beneficial, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who's Latinx and someone who is Black is not experiencing the exact same form of discrimination or oppression, but they both ex- they both experience racism usually some sort of oppression for capitalism, always at the bottom of kind of the the money earning totem pole. And if you're only, for example, perhaps sexism. And so people often found that there were, if you kind of think about it, help people understand like a Venn diagram, people were often overlapping circles of same oppression. So they thought if we kind of collectively put these things together, there's power in asserting those solidarities or sameness. And there's power of operating as kind of that group when trying to make demands, you know, on the majority. Where people critique that idea is that, like I said, there are Venn diagrams, there's overlapping circles, but they're not the same circle. So the question is, in in talking about minority peoples as a group and not distinguishing between the Black experience, the Indigenous experience, the Latinx experience, etc., are we not naming and being very specific about the kinds of oppression people experience, but also erasing some of the differences in culture? right? And background and all that kind of stuff. Um, So those are kind of the reasons for the positives and negatives of it. Um, Lately, I think you're seeing some people push back against that term because although certainly nobody is immune from being a victim of police violence, I think nobody can disagree that overwhelmingly it's a Black or African-American experience. And so people want to emphasize that and not dilute that by saying person of color, because there is something specific, which I think, again, is rooted in the ideas of American slavery that we talked about, about the fear over Black people or wanting to subdue Black people that sometimes other groups experience, but not to the same rate that Black people do. So there's this new term that's come up, or I think it's new. I'm not sure. I I just heard it recently, <laughs> that BIPOC, which why don't you go ahead and tell us what that means, what it stands for, and when we should use it? 
So this term means black, indigenous, and people of color. So it is, I would argue, is my understanding of it. And again, all these terms have a lot of different meanings and stuff. And I also want to emphasize I'm still learning how people use Mm -hmm. them um, as well. But from what I can understand, it means um, it's kind of a newer iteration of people of color, right? A way to show, again, and overlap the overlapping oppressions um, and experiences of, of, of people across this. And it's meant to be an inclusive term, right? Mm-hmm. The idea meaning um, we all share these experiences and there's power in working together and being together. But again, the same critiques come up for person of color or women of color or people of color in the sense that, you know, being Black and being Indigenous is not the same thing, right? You know, I, how I might operate in an America where my ancestors owned the land and it was taken from them and they murdered is very different from having ancestors who were brought over here to work said land, right? And so it doesn't mean that white supremacy as the system isn't doing both of those things, but they are different things. And so that's the critique of kind of using all those at once versus being very specific about which particular group you are speaking about. So a lot of what has been talked about recently is the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I think being an ally especially comes with the responsibility to start conversations. So let's go ahead and talk briefly about what Black Lives Matter is, and we can talk about the the current wave of the movement. Yeah, so um, I think when people mean Black Lives Matter, they mean the movement that came out of the murders of Trayvon Martin and Mike Brown um, in 2013 and 2014. Um, It is a term that was started by three queer Black women to connote a frustration with a lack of Black people acknowledging Black people's humanity and existence and the kind of disposability, the ways in which the police just kill us with reckless abandon. It has then since transformed into kind of an assertion of Black humanity across all forms. So certainly in relationship to police brutality, but also into poverty and schools and um, trans rights and women's rights um, and reparations and everything else. So if you go to the Black Lives Matter website, you can kind of see a multi-pronged platform where it's not just simply about police brutality, but also about you know surveillance of Black people and policing, about schools, about poverty, about access to healthcare, all these kinds of things. But the uniting umbrella is the idea that we have a right to assert one's humanity and for that humanity not to be denied. Over time, I think it has morphed and it looks a little bit different now than it did in 2013, 2014. I would say the primary new and very exciting thing, I think, is the widespread embrace of the idea or slogan. So there was recently, like I think, a New York Times article that showed that like in 2013, 2014, people connoted like Black Lives Matter with like, I guess we hate white people, which I don't begin to understand. Yeah, but now radicalism. Yeah, and radicalism. Now it's much more of a like, oh, okay, they just mean that they're important and their lives want to be valued, yeah. right? Which is what it always meant. But um, yeah. there's kind of a more widespread acceptance of it as not so much of a radical or fringe or out there idea. And I think I, I really do attribute that to the rapid succession of seeing black people killed, right? It's kind of hard to mm-hmm. say like, this is such a radical idea. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then, but also too, I, you see far more non-Black people in the movement, right? I mean, when I was out here protesting, like when I remember protesting in 2013, 2014, it was only Black folks and it was a much smaller number, right? Now you see, you know, I mean, massive, massive waves of folks that are non-Black. And I think that it takes some time for people to kind of get on board and understand what people meant. I also think that the timing of the pandemic has made it so that people have got more time on their hands because they're home to do this kind of work. Because, you know, you have to be able to go to the protest, which is a class 
thing to be able to take time off from work to be able to do that. Yeah. And a lot of people and a lot of people are currently unemployed, which is is another mm-hmm. another class issue, but also they exactly. have now the time on their hands to go to protest, whereas some people, regardless of whether you're working class or like have a corporate job or whatever, you mm-hmm. might not be able to take off of work to go to a protest, which is Absolutely. what I the situation yeah. I primarily found myself in. Yeah. And so I think we already kind of started addressing this, but why don't you go ahead and tell us how can we maintain the momentum that we're working with right now? Um, so one of the things I think is really, really important is that, again, I want to emphasize that there are usually large amounts of grassroots organizations in your local town or country. You're seeing this count country, <laughs> not your local country, your local county um, <laughs> that have been have been working steadily at this. I kind of think about these protests you're seeing as the tip of the iceberg, right? You're seeing it poke up because mm-hmm. people have been building and building, but there's a whole part of the iceberg that's underneath that's constantly working that we may not see. A perfect example of this is in Minneapolis, the group that is really focusing on George Floyd's protest and defunding the police is a small local women-headed organization. These groups, more so than these big national groups, that you might see on TV or on Instagram being promoted and stuff are the groups that really need your support and your time and your money. They are the ones that are working directly one-on-one and transforming people's lives day by day. Um, So I would say um, as much as you can get involved with one of these groups, like I said, that might mean giving them dollars to help do what they do. That might mean offering supplies. A big thing local groups need a lot that they have to do is space to meet. If you have access to a space that you can give them free of charge, you know, those kinds of things, um, that would be the way to keep that movement going. And then you feel a connection to it because it's affecting your community. So you're more likely to kind of sustain that work because the people are nearby you, not some big kind of corporate organization. Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and jump around here a little bit because you brought up something really interesting that a lot of these grassroots organizations are founded by women. And during especially the civil rights movement, something I learned in your class was a lot of Basically, this, the backbone of the civil rights movement was women, and it wasn't these big figureheads mm-hmm. like MLK and Malcolm X and all these other people that we hear about in history mm-hmm. books. Like They were, again, like I said, the figureheads, but not necessarily the people doing all the grassroots work. So why don't you go ahead and explain why you think women were excluded from history, especially during the civil rights movement, and some of your favorite women activists? Because we did read a book in your class about your favorite woman activist, and mm-hmm. that's just something that I know you're particularly passionate about. Yeah. So I think there's a couple of reasons that women were not as as at the forefront or are not being taught at the forefront. One is that, I mean, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, there were still, just like today, right? There was plenty of sexism and it was even more ingrained then than it is now that, you know, women's place was in the home and caring for children and not out in the streets kind of organizing. And so I think that helped kind of push some women to the sidelines. Um, But also, I think that people, and I think we see this today even, are desperate for kind of a male leadership because patriarchy teaches us that men lead. And so it was very hard for um, a group to have have kind of a national profile and be seen as serious and have gravitas when it was being directed by a woman. And I think that's still true today. But nonetheless, that doesn't mean that women weren't there and doing the absolute most. One of my favorite women is a woman named Ella Baker which you read about in my class. And um, one, Ella Baker was a lifelong political activist and um, kind of 
Martin Luther King's kind of right-hand woman for many, many years, doing that kind of below-the-water iceberg work that I'm talking about while King said at the top. But one of my favorite things that Ella Baker ever said, and I think is really resonates to today, is that she said, strong people don't need strong leaders, right? Um, and what she was asking for folks to do was to be able to empower people to take control of their own lives and do what was right for them instead of looking to some kind of massive leader to do that for them. And so she that's how she taught. And honestly, that's one of the ways, you know, I try to do that through education, right? I don't, I try to tell people, you know, you don't have to wait for someone to tell you what to do. You don't have to, everybody, you don't have to know it all. You just need to be able to think and be a strong person yourself. And then you don't need somebody to do this. You can, you can just take it upon yourself and do what it is that you feel is right and what the world needs. Mm -hmm. But Ella Baker not only ran Martin Luther King's organization called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC for some time. She also served as an advisor for a whole generation of college students who organized sit-ins and voter registration through a group called the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Um, and many of these people are still alive that were then college students, you know, that are now older folks. And they say that there's probably no other person that had more of an impact on their life than Ella Baker, teaching them how to think, teaching them how to organize, teaching them how to kind of take that slice of the injustice pie and just kind of sit down and work. So um, she's really great. Another woman I want to talk about briefly who doesn't get the her due and is actually still alive is a woman named Gloria Richardson. She actually um, is a different story because she wasn't young, but her daughter got her into activism. She's actually a very like middle class black woman who lived in Cambridge, Maryland. And she um, started doing sit-ins with her daughter and with um, other college and high school students and eventually rose in the ranks to kind of be the local leader of the civil rights movement there. So much so that Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general under President Kennedy, negotiated exclusively with her about brokering deals for civil rights in Baltimore. Sorry, in Cambridge, Maryland. Also, I want to emphasize, I think Gloria Richardson's really important because she didn't try to fight this kind of nonviolent or violent dichotomy. She promoted the use of self-defense in the face of um, violence against Black people. And Mar Malcolm X lists her as one of his main inspirations when thinking about how to talk about violence and nonviolence. Yeah, and I think another thing that I really quickly want you to talk about is the Black Power Movement, because especially something I didn't know going into your classes, I think it has this kind of um, violent, kind of really aggressive, radical like veil thrown over it that I wanted you to explain some of the things that was actually true of the Black Power Movement and the, mm -hmm. the grassroots work that they did that we honestly don't learn about. And maybe you could explain why you think that people, I don't know, have this like predisposition to believe that it was this violent radical group when it was really doing a lot of good community work. Yeah. So um, Black Power, when we say that, even though it sounds, I guess, maybe somewhat menacing, what people really mean is just they want control over their own communities. They want to be able to, they call it self-determination, self meaning the right or the ability to determine one's future, and self-defense. And that doesn't always mean like with guns or violence, but just the ability to defend oneself. Maybe that means legally, right? In a court of law, maybe that does mean, you know, by um, arming oneself, but it's a range of things. So it's, it's, that's really at its core what it means. Um, and to kind of give you an example of how things have been misconstrued, um, you know, take something like the Black Panther Party. That's probably the group that everybody knows of. And um, the Black Panther Party is kind of, you should think of it as a subset 
of groups under the umbrella of the Black Power Movement. Um, they're most known, and probably because I think they're a big reason why we think of it as violent, because they did these armed police patrols. But really what they were doing was just trying to, again, defend their community. So as we see now today, what was happening often was that people were getting harassed and killed by the police. This isn't a new thing. It's just being recorded, right? Um, so what they did is they read up on the penal codes and the rules and the rights of anybody has. And what they would do under their Second Amendment right, right, that everybody says they have, but miraculously only white people get to use, <laughs> is to um, stand the requisite number of feet back and recite the penal code. And if I want you to think about what that does for somebody, that tells the police that somebody's watching them, right? They don't just get to do whatever they want. That tells the person that's being harassed or arrested or hurt that they have rights. And then that tells the community that's watching around them that there's somebody there to defend those rights, right? So they did nothing illegal and they never harmed, they never, you know, engaged in these kinds of, um, they didn't get in the middle of these altercations. It was just a way to let folks know. Um, so that's kind of maybe where they get the violent image. But just to take a group, kind of the flip side of that same group, the Black Panther Party also created expansive community programs because Black people weren't getting the things they needed from their government and their elected officials. So many folks might know about the free breakfast program, which is the exact reason we have free breakfast in schools today. That's a direct relationship. But also it was more expensive. They made um, programs to for free health clinics so that people could get checkups because it was either too expensive and people didn't have health insurance. They made free shoe programs because people didn't have shoes to get to work and bus passes to get to work. They made a free ambulance program because often the ambulance wouldn't come to the inner city to pick up people to take them to the hospital and people were dying because of that. They worked with groups to help um, babies have better nutrition. Um, they also gave out just free food, like chicken dinners, for people that didn't have enough to eat. Um, so when you're talking about community control and self-determination and self-defense, this is an example of all of that. They're controlling the resources in their community. They're helping people determine their own futures in the absence of having other help. And they're defending their community against, you know, crime. They're defending their community against hunger. They're defending against lack of education. Mm-hmm. When you, when you start to think about it that way, you can understand why shouldn't a lot of people be on board with that? Who doesn't want to be able to do those basic things yeah. and have those basic needs met? Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I think the last thing that I want to talk about before we go today is intersectionality. So can you first describe what intersectionality is? Because I know a lot of people don't know what that means. Yes. So intersectionality is a way of describing one's position or a set of oppressions, but it is not an identity right? One cannot be intersectional. I want to be clear about okay. that. So when we talk about intersectionality, we mean that there is a set of oppressive forces, racism, sexism, homophobia, um, you know, classism, um, anti-trans stuff, right? And that a single person can exist at the epicenter of those things, right? So I'm a Black woman. So I experience racism, I experience sexism and patriarchy. And by virtue of capitalism, I'm never going to be at the top of the, you know, the, the chart, right? I'm always paid less. I'm discriminated against. So I finish, I experience class oppression, right? Um, some might, some might also experience gender oppression or sexuality oppression on top of that. And so the, the term is meant to try to explain how all of those things, all those different oppressions intersect together to put me in a hurting position within society. And by virtue of that, if you try to address all those things at one point or kind of work at the intersection of those oppressions, you can um, help a lot of people at once, right? And solve a lot of problems at once. So 
it's a it's a worldview for thinking about how society is organized. It's a way of describing how people um, are positioned differently within society. And it's also a way to think about the world in the hopes of creating solutions that address multiple problems at once. Yeah. So would you say that in order to address all these intersectional issues, we should work on tackling specific ones at a time? Or what intersectionality does is help us see the confluence of how structures work, right? So the goal here then is to work at the center of those. So take, um, again, the survived and punished group that I'm talking about, right? So it it is those people there are often um, folks that may have been a victim of patriarchy or some kind of domestic violence, right? They're also the victims of um, racism because we know that when, you know, the police are called for domestic violence, often that person might go to jail or be in the criminal system. But if a white person called, that would not be the case, right? It may not even be reported. And then on top of that, um, they're demonized for having been victims of it. And then they may go in or out of the prison industrial complex and not be able to get back on their feet. So you see a lot of, you know, you see the prison industrial complex, you see sexism, you see racism, you see class issues all coming together around that one thing. So what they're arguing then is that if we focus on helping these particular people who have experienced all those things, we can also in the process work towards prison abolition, work towards changing ideas of blaming the victim for sexual assault or domestic violence, work on um, creating resources so that people can get out of these situations, which is a class issue, right? Um, So um, what thinking about things from an intersectional perspective allows us to do is to see um, really great opportunities for fighting a bunch of problems at one time, right? It makes those problems very clear. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a great explanation. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And the last thing that I want to ask is if you feel comfortable. As a Black woman yourself, would you mind sharing maybe your experience with racism in your daily life, whether it's in the form of microaggression or an overt racist act? I would just say that I'll give an example just from, you know, for that being a professor at school, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Often I am called Miss instead of Doctor. Right. Um, and mm. I remember in class, you were very adamant about being called doctor because you did get your PhD mm-hmm. and that's a recognition that you deserve. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, so it's not so much, a, you know, a hierarchy thing. It's more so just that I know that many people would not dream of doing that to my white male mm-hmm. counterpart. Right. And the idea kind of under underlying that is you people like you don't deserve that title or people you don't have that kind of authority. Um, So it's an effort to do that. Other ways in which I'm kind of dismissed or overlooked might be that somebody I had a sense where somebody walked into the classroom and asked where the teacher was. And I was standing at the front at the the lectern. I was like, what do you think I'm doing here? Right. But again, the idea is that you don't think a professor looks like me. So I must not be that person. And I should be the person fetching that person <laughs> that is supposedly the professor. Oh my right? God. That's um, awful. You know, um, or, you know, I might get an accolade or something, you know, win a fellowship, win an award or something. And because I'm black and also because I write about black things, you know, one of the things that somebody might say is, oh, well, you know, they need, you need a diversity or, you know, oh, they needed somebody. Yeah. Black, right. I know that's something a lot of people experience, especially in the workplace. Mm-hmm. People say, oh, you're a diversity mm-hmm. hire. You weren't, you don't actually deserve right, to be exactly. there, which is absolutely absurd to yeah. me. But yeah. So those are just some of the examples just within the realm of higher education that, you know, that folks battle because there's an idea of what a, who a professor is. There's an idea of what should be mm-hmm. taught, who has authority, who has knowledge, 
Yeah. And those don't look like black people and certainly don't look like black women. And so the last thing I want to say wrapping up this episode is that if you are in college and you do have the ability to take a black history course at your college or university or even high school, I don't I don't know that high schools have this yet, but hopefully one day it will be part of the K through 12 curriculum. I highly encourage you to take a class because it has been, again, like I said at the beginning, one of the most insightful experiences I've had at my university. And especially, I think I've said this on my podcast before, like I'm in Greek life and I know Greek life has a past that is ingrained in racism. And I think I am hoping as a part of that community to be a voice and to be someone that is outwardly spoken against these things. So I think whatever you can find, whatever organizations you're involved with, I highly encourage you to not only educate yourself, especially if you can formally, but also just be that outspoken person in those organizations, in your communities, etc. So thank you so much, Dr. Farmer, for being on my podcast today. One thing I would love for you to share is if someone after finishing this episode could do one thing to help anything, what would what would you say that they should do to make a difference today? Um, go look up their city's police budget and see how much money is actually being spent on policing and how much is being spent on schools or healthcare or anything It's else. outrageous. And if they think that that is not right, start joining an organization that's working towards it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I'll be sure to have the organization that you shared in the description of the episode. Why don't you go ahead and share where they can find you? You have a website? I do. I am on Al Gore's internet. Um, <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, I my website is ashleydfarmer.com, um, and you can find um, more about my research, um, a couple of articles I've written. Um, I think there's some podcasts and some videos mm-hmm. on there. I also tweet from at Dr. Ashley Farmer. Go um, follow mostly, her, guys. Almost exclusively. Yes. I follow about you. About black history. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> yeah, I do. Oh, Lord. <laughs> There's a lot of people on there. Um, yeah. So those are two ways in which I kind of share information um, and about topics about black history that I care about. All right. Well, I will go ahead and again, post the links in the description. I'll also share maybe some additional resources that I can, either websites or podcast episodes that y'all can listen to to learn more. I know this was only an hour, but there's so much more to learn and so much more to share. So I hope that y'all take advantage of those resources. But again, thank you guys so much for listening. And thank you, Dr. Farmer, for being on this episode. I really appreciate your time and insight because honestly, you're very, very insightful insightful in my life and just the things that I've learned throughout your class. So thank you. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And that's a wrap for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed and I genuinely hope that you guys learned something as well. I know that even after taking her class for a whole semester, I learned something from this one hour of recording. So I'm sure each and every one of you took something away from this and can continue to create conversations in your day-to-day life around Black Lives Matter. And that's why I'm asking if you could, if you wouldn't mind sharing this episode with your friends, your family, with social media, whether that's Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, whatever. I think what Dr. Farmer had to say is really important for people to continue to hear and talk about. So if you wouldn't mind sharing it, I would really, really appreciate it. But you guys, I'm so excited for more guests lined up in the next few weeks. These episodes coming out soon are going to be incredible as well. And I'm so glad that I finally got to do this one as well. So 
looking forward to the future of what's stopping you and I hope you guys are too and I will see y'all next week. Have a great week guys.